1: Hi and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for 4 minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. This is episode number 252. I'm Susan Sories, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 29,000 State of Cannabis NewsHour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about bad parents... DC is closing the door on the gifting scheme. Chuck Schumer or later talking to the GOP. The dormant commerce clause in Illinois. A trending story about the first reported cannabis death. Grass fed cows and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gun. The show today is Rico Lamite. likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis Hour. I can't wait for your spicy, spicy story, Rico.
2: Spicy indeed, and... Um it comes as you hear Zora in the background here. Um, she's gonna have her two-year checkup uh, this morning, so um, appropriately, she's in the background for it. So, my story com- is coming out of LiveMint.com. Mother rubs chili powder in um, this in her son's eyes to treat his cannabis addiction. There's a viral video making the rounds on Indian Twitter, geotagged in Telangana, uh, Talang- India, depicting a young male in his mid-teens tied to a utility pole screaming while a woman violently rubs a substance in his face. According to uh, local reporting, it was a mother punishing her 15-year-old son by rubbing chili powder in his eyes after discovering he was addicted to cannabis. The video caption reads, "A mother found out that her 15-year-old son was becoming a ganja addict and came up with a unique treatment by tying him to a pole and rubbing chili powder in his eyes until he promised to quit. Unique treatment indeed. Per a report from prominent Indian news outlet Sakshi, uh, the woman's name is Ramanama, and she's a daily wage earner from Suriapit District. Her husband's a rickshaw driver, and the person bound and tortured was her son. He used to um, to attend school before the pandemic, but dropped out um, later, says the story. After quitting, he got addicted to cannabis and stayed that way despite several warnings. The son went missing for 10 days before coming back, all drugged up and fed up. Uh, Ramanama took matters into her own hands, deciding to mete out a unique treatment to her drug-addicted son by tying him to a pole and rubbing chili powder in his eyes while a a neighbor shot and released the video on social media. She's been charged by local police for the offense, but it's unclear what the allegations were, and they didn't even mention any punishment that she might be facing. Ramanama... spoke to Sakshi and claimed that she had to resort to this extreme act after the boy refused to mend his ways. She um, often find him lying on roads and drugged in a drug state and carry him back to his home. The video was filmed uh, around the same time a big drug bus went down at a nearby upscale pub in Bonhaura Hills. The pub was operating beyond uh, permitting hours, uh, leading to 150 people being detained, including big movie and TV stars uh, Naharika uh, Conadela and Big Boss Telugu season three winner Tollywood, and Tollywood singer Raul Siplaguni. Uh, the crackdown led to um, police task force taking place uh, wee hours on Sunday and uh, at Pudding and Mink Pub housed inside Radisson Blue Hotel, and three pub owners have been booked under the NDPS Act. A little more on that in just a second here. Seems like there's a, it is a case of a concerned mother afraid uh, her son's hanging out with the wrong celebrity crowd and being influenced by the evil ganja drugs that they consume. And it's not anybody else's business, right? Digging a little bit deeper, I did a quick Google search, uh, Google map search uh, to get a lay of the land for the ge- um, geography of the story. Banhara Hills, where the pub and bus went down, is three hours car ride away from Talangana uh, or a 23 hour walk. Sakshi News, uh, who interviewed the woman, is a tabloid-style news outlet, which I could best describe as a juiced-up combination of TMZ and Fox News. Um, if I were to believe the background story on uh, Rana Mama and her 15-year-old son, there's no way logistically he was at or near any celebrity party to get influenced by movie stars hopped up on ganja, and no way defined or vet uh, what was really going on in this disturbing video showing an Indian woman um, allegedly abusing the shit out of her son. Uh, Cannabis is mostly illegal in India, say, for religious purposes, and they ended up cracking down on cannabis consumption in the 1980s after being pressured by the U.S. government in their global effort on the war on drugs, and they established the Narcotics, Drugs, uh, and Psychotropic Substance Act, the NDPS, who I mentioned earlier, in 1985 pushing draconian punishments on drug peddlers and consumers. The result, mainstream conservative media outlets modeled after hours 30 years later, still pushing out lies and reefer madness propaganda, polarizing the public, making them decide if this woman's torture of her son is appropriate for him skipping school. Great use of influence, right, America? This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad on these American streets, reporting live from the State of Cannabis NewsHour, and I'd love to hear the rest of the team's response to this It's terrible.
1: It's terrible. Bad, bad parent.
2: Bad influence by the U.S., the war on drugs, and um, you know what? Our mainstream media pushing out this Fox News and TMZ tabloid bullshit. It's even less regulated around the rest of the world, and it's going to lead to more shit like this.
3: All right. Well, number one, I don't know if I truly agree with the method she chose, but number two, if we want to say what about the kids and let parents parent their kids, we can't just say it for when we want them to be allowed to use cannabis. We need to also say it when they want to parent their children not to use.
2: But that's so abuse. So I say
3: good for her. Do what she's got to do.
2: But Greg, take, but take but
3: a role in their child's lives. And fuck them. I don't, I don't care. I don't think that we should be out there dictating. Gretchen, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't lives. say that. I'm
2: saying this is propaganda. Nothing in this story, in the background of the story makes sense. I understand
3: sense. that you're saying it's propaganda. The geography of I'm it. I'm saying like, if it is. At, at one iota But I'm
2: saying I mean, we can't even rely on that. And they're pushing out a bunch of reefer madness propaganda in other countries modeled after ours. That's Pushed what I'm saying. At. You're, I'm sa- saying, you're, saying,
4: you're saying it's OK. That. You're saying it's OK to torture a person?
2: I'm
3: not saying torture, but, yeah, I got spanked. There are ways to do uh, your children. No, and you no, want no.
1: To...
5: Come
4: on.
1: Uh, let come let on, parents discipline your children. OK, um, we're going to. Hold okay. on.
5: We, we, don't even know if we don't even know if that's illegal in India or not.
4: Can we okay. get a lawyer in the room that it's, specializes still, in it's, it's law? not the point that's not the
6: point Are you India. Kidding me? this is not, that's not the point uncommon
1: to hear stories like this it's okay we're gonna keep moving because we've got a lot of news today up next is co-producer Jason Beck his provocative spin keeps the show popping he has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco what have you got today Jason
5: Oh, yeah. Good morning, Susan, and happy hump day, everybody. And today, my story comes out of D.C., where some of these people are saying, we'll have to close our doors. D.C. Cannabis Gifting Services say new legislation would obliterate recreational sales. DC's cannabis gifting services are a symptom of the city's second-class status in the US. Its residents voted for 20 in 2014 to legalize cannabis, but Congress is continuing to ban on legal adult use sales and the district essentially created a gray market where adult use users must purchase items and receive a gift of a cannabis product. On Tuesday, the DC Council is poised to consider emergency legislation um, not an uncommon legislative tactic in the district that, uh, that circumvents congressional review that would bolster the fortunes of medical cannabis businesses and crack down on the gifting services. The bill proposed by Councilman Chair Phil Mendelson aims to alleviate complaints by medical dispensaries that I-71 business, businesses, their name derives from Initiative uh, I-71, the 2014 ballot measure that legalized cannabis don't face the same regulatory regime that the other businesses do. And as a result, they enjoy an unfair advantage. That's basically what they're trying to say with this. D.C. could close unregistered marijuana businesses for 96 hours and fine them and their landlords at the same time. Anyone who wanted a medical cannabis card would be able to self-certify their needs and purchase from medical cannabis dispensaries, which I think is a big up, which means that they would be allowing reciprocity under this amendment. Uh, Annis Hayes is the COO and co-founder of District Derp, an I-71 business that has a team of 10 people working either full or part-time. Moving all trade uh, to the medical dispensaries would probably lead to price hikes, he says. Uh, also, she says – Only seven medical dispensaries are currently licensed to operate in the district. And while legislation aims to increase that number, the current market would be immediately disrupted. No matter what happens, you're looking at at least a a couple months before new dispensaries could begin to operate, she says. I don't see how the supply meets the demand in in light of this. Uh, And more immediately, says Christopher Christopher Leticia, District Dirk CEO and other co-founder, when the legislation becomes effective, we'll have to close the doors of District Dirk. You know what I say? Wah, wah, wah. The I-71 committee is a trade group that represents about a half a dozen gifting businesses. Its members are all for making it easier to access medical cannabis and would also welcome regulation, says Grace Reader, Its executive director, But this legislation will have a horrible impact on I-71 businesses, many of which she points out are run by black and brown entrepreneurs. And she says it really moves our city backwards in terms of harming legacy operators, Reader says. It's it's still unclear how the bill's provisions would be enforced. She says, I don't know what they've thought this, this process through its entirety. Several council members expressed reservations about fast-tracking this legislation at a breakfast meeting on Tuesday. And if enough object, that could give the I-71 businesses some breathing room. Many have encouraged their customers to call their council members to express disapproval. And this is Mendelssohn's second attempt to pass such legislation, though, which suggests that even if I-71 business dodge a moving train today, another will be along soon. And they say, we would really like more time to work on the council, Reader says. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, the one thing that's never promised is 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 continual operation in this business, because this is a new business. And when you operate in that area, these are the types of legislative hurdles you have to be able to maneuver through in the course of being resilient. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour.
3: Well, Jason, it is important to note that this legislation did not go through. Uh, it failed in the D.C. Council and people will still get to gift in Washington.
6: Also, I mean, even if they stop gifting, just like any other market, there's still – there's like a quasi-quasi market in D.C., no? I mean I'm, it just
5: doesn't what, go no, anywhere. But, but, what, what, what they're really saying is that if, that if that bill was passed, there would be finances appropriated to crack down on the, on the gifting businesses and then allow for the medical permitted dispensaries to be able to serve anyone that comes in with them being able to self-certify that they're a patient
6: yeah but people still wouldn't want to pay dispensary prices because i don't know that we just it doesn't disappear just because they make it illegal
5: i'm just saying if we want to have a regulated market we need
7: to work within a regulated framework i agree and i, and I do love the self-certifying um aspect of it that could be something
5: nice i, I love that self-certify see. i i think that's one of the smartest things i've seen a legislator put in paperwork so far i like it a lot thanks
8: does self-certify mean that you just show up and say, "I'm a patient. I need cannabis to save my life"? No.
5: Well, you well you end up basically. You need to just self-certify that you're a patient that cannabis helps alleviate the symptoms or the condition. Isn't
7: the, this, the condi-
3: isn't this self-certifying <laughs> just for seniors? It's not for everyone.
5: Well, in, in, know, in the article, it didn't specify for seniors. I did see that where uh, one state was saying uh, they can self-certify it for for seniors, but this this article did not specify that. So I gave me the impression that it was basically anyone uh, over 21. Or 18. I like it.
9: It looks like the bill just kind of barely failed. Uh, It needed nine votes to pass, and it got eight to be able to pass. So I wonder if they'll bring this back up soon.
2: We shall see, and we'll be watching it as well. Thank you for that one, uh, Jason. And um, you can always find some great California weed on the East Coast, too. So um, up next, (laughs) (laughs) she's a feisty redheaded conservative, uh, proudly- uh, claiming her ma- Mayflower roots in never backing down when challenged from pot loving libs across the aisle. Founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider, coming from, to the stage next is Gretchen Gailey. What do got for us today, Gretchen?
10: Uh,
3: good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline is coming from Marijuana Moment. Uh, Schumer talking to GOP to see what they want in marijuana legal- legalization bill coming this oh. month. This headline goes, Senate Majority <laughs> Leader Chuck Schumer said on Tuesday that he and colleagues are in the process of reaching out to Republican senators to see what they want included in a bill to federally legalize marijuana he's planning to introduce later this month. Uh, the leader was pressed during a briefing with reporters about the fact that he's been discussing plans to file legalization legislation for more than a year. The new comments come less than a week after the U.S. House of Representatives passed a separate legalization bill from House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler. Uh, Schumer said, we hope to file the bill towards the end of April, adding that he, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden and Senator Cory Booker are talking about it. And in fact, we're trying to reach out to other lawmakers about the forthcoming bill. He said, I've reached out already to a few Republicans to see what they want. In, in Washington Insider speak, that means on the way to the john, he said to somebody, what do you think about pot? This man is making zero effort to actually try and reform his bill and to work across the aisle uh, to get can- uh, input from uh, Republican lawmakers on how the CAOA should be, uh, should be done. Uh, he says he's going to reveal it at the end of April. That's what he said last year. I don't know if I really believe Uncle Chuck, uh, but I do believe he has no interest in actually passing uh, comprehensive cannabis reform. This is Gretchen for uh, State Cannabis News Hour.
5: Gretchen, since they're starting these talks uh, right now with Republicans, do you think it's even actually realistic that they would be able, ready to release the bill on April 20th?
3: I mean, if he was actually serious, if someone said, I want this provision, uh, which might be something drastically different from what they have, Uh, unless it's just completely omitting things from the bill and Republicans say, no, I don't want this. I don't want this. And so he's like, all right, you can take things out, but if you want to put things in, that can be a bit tougher um, trying to figure out whether or not things logistically work. Uh, But that's also, if you only cared about it actually working, which he doesn't. So I I don't see it happening. And the other thing this article talks about is how similar the CAOA is to the Moore Act. uh, And the Moore Act only got three Republican votes. So the likelihood that Republicans are going to get on board with the CAOA is unlikely.
2: I agree with you, Gretchen. Um, I I just don't see it happening.
3: Um, Another thing I don't really like, I mean, uh, about the CAOA is uh, it gives regulatory authority to the FDA, who's already said we don't want it, the ATF and the TTB. I I don't know if these are people who really should be in charge of these sort of things. I mean, the DEA wasn't doing a great job, but I also don't think it should go to the
1: ATF. I think Who's that's
5: a T-T-B? That- no. No, t- it, should, it should go. It should go to TTB. Alcohol, and I think tobacco,
3: tobacco tax and trade. bureau.
1: <laughs> no, TTB. Who's that? That's the
3: Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau.
5: Okay. Yeah. No. No. TTB would be would be the right <laughs> people, and then uh, ATF would become the ACTF, basically.
3: Yeah. Well, and the FDA would look at things from the food and drug, uh, you know, perspective. The yeah, ATF there needs to be. Say would be more
6: the adult use side, and then tobacco tax and trade, they would care about the tax side. Exactly. Well, I mean, I agree with Gretchen that none of these bills are going to pass, but I also agree that you need to work out who's going to have what, because FDA could also could have jurisdiction over all the food products or also could not, and it really depends on what Congress says. So I agree with Gretchen and also yeah. think we need to figure it out. Yeah, you do we don't want to just pass something without... And then all of a sudden, all these agencies say, we have jurisdiction. We're going to send out warning letters. We don't know how to handle this. We don't know what we're doing. We don't want jurisdiction. We don't have resources.
5: You you do not want the FDA to have any jurisdiction in any of this. That would be one of the biggest
2: catastrophes to happen. And
6: the CAOA gives primary, I'm pretty sure, or at least, like, joint, at least.
2: I think we should ban all government acronyms more than three letters.
6: (laughs) Between the bills and the agencies, it's such BS.
4: Especially ones that don't make anything any sense, like C A O A.
2: O A. C O A O A. KoA KoA. <laughs> oh no, it's boy! Oh my goodness. My Either goodness, way, goodness. it's
3: not happening. So I don't even know if I should keep reporting on the damn thing. It's not happening. It's fantasy. I don't talk about fake news.
2: You just speak about. you just You just speak with fake with a uh, fake news perspective.
3: That's
6: I just for you That was fake good. News. I appreciate I appreciate your dose of reality because it's also real. It's like it's not gonna happen. And you get people saying, Oh my god, it's gonna happen. It passed and it's like it's
9: not.
2: I agree. It's still
9: it's still worth knowing, you know. What they have in mind, though, and at the federal level, can you imagine kind of having federal agencies write regulations 10 years behind some of these other these other places?
5: Yes. I, I, I
9: mean, it's going to happen.
5: <laughs> but. 100%, 100%, 100%. Let's just lessen it's it, you know? It's inevitable. Well, that was a fantastic story. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Coming up next, we have Menica Mukhajian. She is a pot-loving Ph.D. and champion of common-sense cannabis policy, a real-life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. What do you have this morning for us, Menica?
9: Thank you so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My headline today is, Feeding Cows Hemp Helps Them Chill Out, Federally Funded Study Finds. The story is by Suzanne Perez and was first published in the Kansas News Service. Mike Kleinhens, assistant professor of beef production medicine at Kansas State College of Veterinary Medicine, recently published a study in Scientific Reports, which is a peer-reviewed journal. The researchers received $200,000 from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to analyze the safety of in- industrial hemp as cattle feed. They conducted an exploratory study on the effects of feeding hemp to 16 Holstein steers. Over two weeks, half the steers were given traditional feed, that's the control group, And then the other half ate feed mixed with industrial hemp. The research team tracked the cattle's movements and found that the steers who ate the feed that had been mixed with industrial hemp spent more time lying down. They also monitored the steers' blood for cortisol and prostaglandins, which are biomarkers for stress. The hemp feed group had lower stress hormone levels. Kleinhans said that the hemp was absorbed but did not accumulate in the steers' systems. Quote, we might have a more natural way to reduce stress in cattle, he said. And we're just starting to scratch the surface on some of the benefits, end quote. The results of this research indicate a possible industrial connection between beef ranchers and hemp-derived CBD oil producers, and perhaps eventually CBD oil producers in the legally separate but not botanically separate cannabis supply chain. Hemp growers working in the CBD oil market hire processors to extract oil from seeds and flowers, and then the remaining plant material may end up in landfills. But Kleinhens, the the lead on this research study, says that the byproducts which contain trace amounts of of CBD or THC could instead be used to feed livestock. Ranchers seek ways to help cattle relax for weaning and transport, and sometimes the close quarters um, can cause stress that leads to respiratory infections and other health issues. Quote, basically, it's the old cow recycle system, similar to the ethanol story where cattle are fed distillers' grains from ethanol production. Follow-up studies will look at cattle absorptions, um, cattle's absorption of CBD compounds, and how that might affect food products. "Quote: We want to understand the whole timeline from when an animal last consumes hemp compounds to when it can safely enter the food chain and not have those comp- compounds in the system," Kleinhen said. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which we were just talking about, would have to approve this before hemp could be fed to livestock or pets. So I wanted to bring this to you just to understand some of the the connections with other industries um, that are interested in hemp-derived CBD oil byproducts and just to get your minds turning on how that might uh, eventually be relevant for those of us in cannabis. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis Moose Hour.
1: Oh, how funny. That's so cute. You know what? It's really cool that it lowered their stress levels. When I went deep sea fishing one time and the captain was telling me that if they can catch a, a big tuna uh, really quickly before it realizes it's going to die, it can sell for 10 times more than another uh, fish. So I think that there might be really something to that. I want stress-free exactly. meat. Yeah.
9: Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was reading about when I was looking at this study. So I found this really interesting.
8: Um, did the study talk about that hemp and hemp seed was one of the primary agricultural grains for livestock before 1900? And aren't cows chill when they're allowed to spread out and roam as opposed to being in an industrial setting? I'm just saying, I mean, I appreciate that they're trying, but like, it kind of, there's, a, there's some things that you said in the article that just still speak of like this hemp cannabis shame thank you for doing it. But like, we're revisiting the past, we should just be fast forwarding into the future, just my humble opinion.
9: Absolutely. I mean, when as I was reading this, you know, at first, I I had some mixed emotions, because feeding them industrial hemp to help them not see stressful conditions. Yeah, I think there's a couple different directions we have to approach these issues from. So thank you, for weighing in on that, as well as the history. Thank you.
6: I definitely appreciate this article. The only thing I wanted to add from like, a food and drug law perspective, FDA perspective, is that One of the bills I've seen, States Reform Act, actually would designate cannabis as generally recognized as safe. And that would be huge, which would mean you wouldn't need FDA approval over cannabis as like a food additive or a dietary supplement. So it's it's an it depends issue in terms of the FDA. And we should all be like trying to make it easier for people to use cannabis in every form, including to, to feed animals. So I appreciate the story. I mean,
5: I'm just thinking if you fed this to what is it, the Kobe cows or the Wagyu cows, the ones that get all the massages, Man, those are gonna be some fucking happy cows if you fed them back.
2: What I got out of this story is that uh hemp-based CBD actually works.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: Just saying, Jason.
1: <laughs>
2: Hold on, is this gonna is this gonna spark up a whole new mad cow disease now? As long as something gets sparked up, I'm happy. But going on to our next correspondent, she's working hard to expand safe access, protect religious freedoms, and promote social justice in cannabis, psychedelics, and tax laws. You know who it is. She always stays lit, Victoria Littman. What you got for us today?
6: Thanks for that, Rico. Uh, good afternoon from D.C., y'all. My story today comes from the Cornell Chronicle, and the headline reads, Skill training gaps are obstacles for New York State cannabis workforce. The article is hilariously bad from my perspective. It cites lack of training and skills, as well as insufficient awareness of career opportunities as two of the largest obstacles to achieving social equity in the adult use market, according to a national survey uh, that was developed and distributed by Cornell's Industrial Labor Labor Relations, or IRL school. Uh, They have this initiative, the New York State Cannabis Workforce Initiative. So this data was collected as a first-step for that initiative, at tailoring outreach and education for employers, orgs, and individuals, people who have been with criminal records, and other harms, others harmed by the criminalization of cannabis who are interested in participating in New York State's cannabis industry. Um, so, they, yeah, they developed and distributed the survey to determine cannabis industry stakeholder needs. They got responses from approximately 100 employers, representing a wide range of industry sectors, providing a picture of how the industry is developing. So they said that their data showed that more than 60% of respondents indicated that they are currently or plan to do business in the industry in New York. Dispensary-related jobs were the most in demand. And then harvester, cultivator, and inventory professionals were the second and third most common job titles cited. They said customer service is the most in-demand skill. And then this was the the headline, I guess. Cannabis employers see lack of training and skill as well as lack of awareness of career opportunities as two of the largest obstacles to achieving social equity in the adult use market. Um, Yeah. And then, they of course, their type of data, eight out of 10 respondents expressed interest in learning about their labor and employment law obligations. Um, So to provide a just, fair, and discrimination-free work environment, from best practices in hiring people, to wage and hour requirements, labor relations, human resources practices, all that stuff that ILR deals with. So The survey results are helping lay the groundwork for the group's next steps, says the director um, of the program. Our work is very exciting, she said. We are participating in the building of a new major industry in New York State, one that has the potential to be a game changer for New York's citizens and communities who have suffered due to the criminalization of cannabis and other workers who often work in substandard conditions for little pay. No mention of the fact that this new industry that is being built is not arising out of nothing, but it's rather the transfer from an unlicensed legacy market to a licensed regulated one. Um, So she says, we will be educating employees about their right to healthy and family sustaining jobs and employers about their obligations under the wage and hour laws um, and National Labor Relations Act and other employment laws. She said, in addition, our goal is to provide the new social equity licensees with human resource knowledge they need to run successful businesses. Um, You know, as long as they can put up the capital and meet the stringent so-called social equity license requirements to get a license in the first place. So the Cannabis Workforce Initiative was funded by a $250,000 state grant to support the social equity goals of the MRTA, the cannabis law, and allegedly is working with community leaders, reentry groups, representatives from the adult use industry, unions, educators, policymakers, advocacy groups to assemble an advisory committee. Um, And its programs will include working with their criminal justice and employment initiative to provide education on criminal record, I guess, expungement for justice impacted individuals um, and employers expanding their talent pool to include workers with criminal records. Okay, so that's the story. But let me just repeat this one point. According to this article, lack of training and skills, as well as insufficient awareness of career opportunities are two of the largest obstacles to achieving social equity in the adult use market. I think this is embarrassing. What about the training and skills of legacy operators? What about all the people who are the best cultivators and retailers of cannabis in New York State who are blocked out of being able to get a legal license? The problem is not a lack of skills, it's a fact of barriers. If Cornell and the ILR want to take the social equity grant funded by the MRTA and claim to be doing research to further the laws, social equity claims, it needs to be real about what the labor market for cannabis in New York State actually looks like. Um, So that was my thoughts reading it. That's what I have for you today. I'm Victoria Lippman with the State of Cannabis News Hour.
8: Thank you so much, Gretchen. I think you hit it on the head. You know, like the notion that there's not talent out there and that we don't need to uplift the people that already got us here and have been advocating and providing safe access by any means necessary is just ridiculous. And furthermore, like even here in California and Los Angeles, when we were when they were first trying to do that fast track for social equity, we interviewed a few applicants, but like they need real educational support. It's like as a business person, sure, you want to hire somebody uh, as a social equity applicant, but they also have to kind of know what they're doing, not just from cannabis, but also some business acumen. So if we really wanted to do this, we would be educating those who have already paid it forward to give them the business sense and the things they might not know in the compliant market. They might know how to grow, but they might know not know how to like deal with regulators and that if we really want to do it to your point, we have to lean into educating those who have already paid it forward.
5: 100% gee. Without a doubt, we need to rely on our legacy operators because we're the ones that have the experience that have been doing this longer than everyone fucking else.
7: Well, just let me make a point, too, though, Um, with the legacy operators. These folks just don't want to be workers. Right. And so I don't want cannabis to go down the rabbit hole feeling like I'm doing social equity because I'm hiring people to be bud tenders or, or trimming flower or whatever the case may be. Um, these individuals want to be able to have they want to be the masters of their own ship. They want to have ownership. They want to be able to drive their business in a, and not have to be targeted and going to jail about it. And so, um, Cornell, I know they're they're you know looking at this from angles or what have you, but does, let's not get like so caught up on the workforce. And, and forget about the ownership part of it and as an operator or on the ancillary side or as a supplier. Yeah,
8: Roz, I, I agree. And I, I would also add, you guys, like I'm down for the legacy operators. One thing you said there just also stuck out to me. I have worked with some legacy operators who are not willing to change some of their practices to meet the quote unquote compliant and corporate market where it is. So while, you know, I support, you know, the legacy I also have to say that we, as legacy providers, also need to bend a little bit and realize that the compliant market does not work like the trap, and it's on us to step
0: up.
1: We're, I over, agree. we're over time on that uh, headline. Thank you so much. We're going to do a quick relight.
0: You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
1: The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker,
6: the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers.
1: Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right, coming up next, we have Guy
5: Record, this OG veteran and dope dads known and respected by peers as a steadfast defender of the culture, always first to stand up for the rights of legacy operators, as well as a fellow Emerald Cup flower judge, co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley. Guy Recourt, what do you have us for this morning?
8: Hey, Jason. Thank you so much. Good morning, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Yeah, I think I'm still high from judging the cup, you guys, dude. Woo. So awesome. Um. Okay, today my article is coming from out of Florida, Fox 13, Tampa Bay. High Life Cannabis Infused Farm listed on Airbnb. Sonoma County, California, Airbnb has partnered with California Cannabis Farm to offer guests a getaway in more than one ways. According to the Vacation Home Rental site, the Sonoma Hills Farm is an idyllic Northern California farm set that produces world-class cannabis along spacious culinary gardening and regenerative practices. It sounds like where Jason and I were just recently in Ukiah. Guests who are 21 and older will be offered a one night stay at a neighboring property hosted by Aaron key for the farms cannabis cultivator between April 30th and May 3rd for $60 a night. So essentially these guys and kudos to Airbnb for, uh, for allowing the conversation to start. Now, I have to be clear, the article specifically says hemp and kind of has some of those like hemp v. cannabis misnomers that tend to irritate me. So I, in reading the article, I feel like they're talking about CBD because at one point they say something like hemp-based cannabis. am not sure what that means, but hey, I'm happy for the article. I think that When folks like this, like Airbnb and eventually hotels, start to normalize cannabis and say, hey, we're not going to call security if you step out in the smoking section and smoke cannabis or if we have designated areas, just like we have designated areas for alcohol, right? If I walk out with a beer and they say, hey, you can't walk out with a beer, it should be the same thing if I'm inappropriately smoking, just politely ask me to step over. Those are the things that normalize cannabis and start to really, truly change the game. This also went on. You know, to talk about uh, some of the House Senate bills that we've been having, and talk about uh, you know even Schumer's bill, uh, and and how it would be de- uh, schedule and uh, implement some five and eight percent taxes. Um, you know, not the deepest article, but again, in the spirit of normalizing cannabis, this is awesome. And so it's definitely renewed my faith in the concept of Airbnb, uh, because I'm just glad when folks attach their name to cannabis and keep that conversation moving in a positive way. Um, this is Guy Recourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour.
2: I agree, Guy. It is uh, yeah. good for the normalization uh, movement, it, even if they're, they're fucking up what it really is. Like, It's in a positive light, and this is it's good for all of us.
5: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. You know, as far as with the the hotel side, that's one of the things that I'm working with the city of West Hollywood on is to get uh, get the hotels on board with cannabis, because the reality is you can't market a city as being a tourist cannabis destination without having the hotel industry behind you.
8: Yeah, and you know, Jason, uh, the this the, the pictures look very much like the place that the judging was at, and I feel if it's okay with folks to call out Yokohama, or, or I'm probably mispronouncing it, Jason Yokohama Ranch. Yeah,
5: Yukaya. Uh, yeah, y- 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 Yoko, Yoko. I call it Yoko Ono Ranch. <laughs>
8: uh, but if you're looking to have a wedding and make sure that your folks can roll blunts and smoke and maybe even dabble a little psychedelics, I definitely. Uh, think that you should reach out to him because it's a beautiful appointed high end place. Oh, that surprise! Surprise! You can use your
5: cannabis in, and so the two are not mutually exclusive. You want to hear a funny story? Gee, is Nicole who hosted us uh, over there? I actually knew her. She actually used to come to the store in San Francisco back in the day when I was when I was out there back in the day, and I didn't even realize it until I got back on Monday morning. Wow! It's well,
1: we've got we've got Mary Clifton up from the audience. Mary, did you want to weigh in? That the hemp-derived cannabis comment is coming from, that's,
9: that's uh, D8, D10, THCO, HHC. That's what uh, we call them, hemp-derived or cannabis from hemp.
5: Better known as boof. The boof, you said the boof, boof, you going to need a boof-fest? It's definitely a boof-fest.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. Just
8: don't feed the cows boof. Let's feed the cows the good stuff.
5: Oh, I thought we were feeding the cows the seeds.
1: Let's keep smoking the news.
2: And let's stop feeding the trolls. <laughs> She's a Florida-based, be entrepreneur- hungry. <laughs> they, they do. She's a Florida-based entrepreneurial boss running ultimate lifestyle brand Black Buddha Cannabis. She's also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana at the same damn time. Coming to the stage next from the great state of Florida, Roz McCarthy. What you got for us?
7: Hey, Rico. Hey, family. Uh, um, good morning to afternoon. So cannabis amnesty boxes rarely used at O'Hare Midway Airport's record show. And so I don't know if you guys have seen this before, and I thought it was kind of interesting. When you're coming off the air, um, when you're going through uh, um, uh, security or what have you, there's boxes there that basically if you have cannabis on you in Los Angeles and Chicago, and I'm sure other different airports, that you can put your stash there and not get into, into any trouble. And that's what happens in Chicago. Um, That job, which is actually handled by the Chicago Police Department, hasn't been very demanding. Um, Only 34 collections have been made from January 2020 through March 20th, including 22 at O'Hara and 12 at Midway, according to logs obtained through an open records request. Only half the logs show that either cannabis suspected cannabis or green leafy substances was recovered from the boxes. The others don't explicitly mention weed, with one log showing that only plastic bags were found during a check, indicating the the boxes may, in some cases, double as trash cans. In many instances, multiple items, including boxes, bags, and packages, were pulled from a box at once. The records show that the the recovered items were destroyed 14 times, but were marked simply as received in most cases. While local authorities have said they aren't arresting passengers caught with pot, federal, st- federal law still prohibits the transportation of weed across state lines. Thus, the MC boxes give travelers an easy way to avoid any trouble. And although the boxes haven't seen much action, one at Midway was was the scene of a cannabis caper just twenty two days after the drug was legalized. A passenger at Midway took a picture of an MC box that evening and then snatched some pot before a cop could enjoy it. police Police records showed he apparently flew off scot-free. So we've we've been seeing the boxes there in all our airports. I would love to hear you guys' thought. Um, is this something that is even worth your time of having boxes there or not? I'm Roz McCarthy signed off on from the State of the Cannabis News Hour. Let me know what you think.
2: I've seen them in um in Denver and I literally laughed out loud when I saw that shit. Like <laughs> I would not put my put my weed in there and um, travel responsibly with my shit. I've I've never got it confiscated. Yeah, yeah I'm, it, I'm with, I I would. Oh, go ahead, Ross.
7: No, I was just going to say, has anybody ever, like, like I had a, a, a vape pen and something else in my bag, and I was coming out of Ohio, and I just forgot. And, it, you know, I'm a medical patient, but I'm, I'm just curious anybody ever got called, got stopped, or, you know, having their staff with them?
1: I, I got I a course. note in my suitcase when I came back from Jamaica. I was a judge at the World Cup, and I had all of the samples from judging. And they just left a little note that my suitcase had been inspected.
5: I got, I got a ticket. Um, uh, yeah, well, actually, it's not their jurisdiction because if they're catching it on land, it's not their jurisdiction. It's going to be local law enforcement jurisdiction. But uh, coming back from like, Vegas it, one it, time, say, I says, had, them, uh, we're I not had them go through my bag. Yeah, I, I had them go through my bag and uh, they found some weed and took it out and left a ticket in there and basically was saying, if we catch this, would you eat we'll again? it's a felony to possess weed at an airport, blah, 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 blah. And that was pretty much it. But I think everyone should totally use these things as trash cans and let's spoof the government. Let's use these things as trash cans and make them have to empty out nothing but trash.
1: Gee,
8: did you want so, to weigh in? Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, definitely, I've gotten the TSA thing and I've definitely gotten pulled over at TSA for having cannabis or smelling like cannabis, a variety of things. So First of all, TSA has no narco mandate. That's not what they're looking for. And yeah, I've had them open up and see my products. And you need to look that TSA fa- person in the face and be like, really? Because the fact is, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And if they call the officer, that's when shit gets hot. That being said, I love the notion of a safe place so that we're not cr- over-criminalized. But the reality is, is I'm with Rico. If you guys need help figuring out how to keep your weed with you, go ahead and call me because I'll help you. Wasting weed, really? But- yeah, I also agree that it's a great, safe place.
11: Uh, I can, I, I like this article. I can say that in, in the state of California, you in almost every airport, you go through um, your security check. They find cannabis in your bag. Unless you have a tremendous amount of cannabis, they're just putting that right back in your bag. If TSA actually calls a cop, when the cop shows up, they get upset with TSA for calling them.
5: Yeah, no, Brandon, you're 100% right. San Francisco, Wait, Oakland, uh, uh, San Jose, LAX, um, all have the official airport policy that if you are caught with cannabis by TSA, then it's a law enforcement's obligation. Uh, they have a hands-off approach, so be safe when you travel through TSA. The waste of
2: everybody's so time. A lesson, everybody's time.
6: Is the lesson carried on? Is that what I can Yes,
2: yes, yes. They have zero enforcement. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we can't let we, you... We shouldn't tell people you? to carry it on. But it's the official airport.
6: Well, no, you were like you're like oh, I got a I got a ticket in my bag, but then I hear Brandon, and that's when my that career. was from
2: Vegas.
5: That was when I flew out of Vegas. Vegas is not one of the airports I listed. Got I it. Said San got Francisco, it, got it, got
2: it. San Jose, Oakland, LAX. is a good PSA. And in like, New York, TSA. New York State uh, TSA officials said that they are no longer going to be looking for cannabis. Period. They made an official statement about that.
7: Just be safe and be careful. Someone in our chat said that you can carry up to eight ounces out of California. I don't know you how you can. That if is. you're a
5: med- if you're a medical patient, you are allowed to carry eight ounces on your person anywhere.
7: got All right. So there's news. I mean, I think this article is great because it just reminds us we all travel and just to be careful, but also you can kind of stand your grounds and you have some rights, especially if you're a medical patient.
5: But you have no rights as a medical patient wherever you land.
4: We're talking about US only, though, right? We've got that woman uh, basketball player in prison in Russia.
5: Russia, Russia, Russia. But that's Delta Eight, bro. That's
4: absolutely not the
5: point. It's 100% Delta Eight, pen. But coming up next, uh, all this high flying talk. Is it a bird as the plane? No, it's Christopher Smith, the p- publisher and strategist, communications director for Americans Cannabis Report. What do you have coming up for us today, Chris?
4: <laughs> thank you, Jason. Good morning, Susan and in the Fabulous State of Cannabis producing team. Thank you guys from the whole the whole leadership team for all you do to make this show so much fun to participate in. Uh, I have another story that's trending in the UK today where the headline writers are smoking too much ganja or not enough. Tough to tell. Uh, headline writing is a specialty to be sure. In, in many publications, a, research, a reporter will research and write a story, and then another person will write the headline, which is why many times we seek cannabis headlines that don't reflect the facts of the story and when they fail to tell the simple truth in their headlines it's washing back on all of us i think when they're not true these lies reinforce stigma against our business and against our community so i learned the craft uh, let's see I learned the craft of headlining writing uh, in in the advertising industry, so I would like to help out my UK brethren and in with a headline for a real story that really happened on the 29th of March. Synthetic Cannabis Kills Nigerian Law Student. Or here's another one. Candy Laced with Illicit Synthetic Cannabis Proves Fatal. Or... Maybe the best headline for all, Deadly Edibles, Synthetic Cannabis Kills Young Woman. All these headlines are accurate and true descriptions of a tragedy that happened in London just a little while ago. Two young women friends, one American, one Nigerian, ordered a pack of Trilly peach... Peachy O's uh, on Snapchat or something, which was, uh, they were advertised as gummy candies. Each woman took one gummy. They were immediately sickened, rushed to the hospital, and the Nigerian woman, who is a 23-year-old law student and the only child of a single mother, tragically passed away two days later. The friend survived and was released from the hospital. A man who provided the toxic gummies was arrested. So all those, story, all those pieces of the story are true. The product that the young women uh, consumed was, has not been fully tested yet. However, all of the articles that I read said the same thing in the text of the article. The candy was made from synthetic cannabis. But the headline you see on top of the screen is, Woman Dies in East London After Eating Cannabis Sweet. So we all know that synthetic cannabis is sprayed with God knows what toxic shit. It's killed dozens of people around the world. I wish, frankly, that people would stop even calling it cannabis altogether. The Cannabis Suite headline appeared in more than 50 sources uh, around the world. And you know that each page of a Google result is 10 results. So that story was the only story on the first five and a half pages of a Google result. We see this all the time. And as legal operators, we need to Stand up and defend the truth and the honor of legal providers who work really hard to provide safe products. So here's what I would like to do. If you click on this article posted on the top here, uh, you can see the article author. His name is Harry Taylor. He has links to his Facebook, his Twitter, his email right below his name. Let's use those links right to Harry Taylor, set him straight. Responsibly and professionally made gummies are good and safe for patients and enjoyed by adults. And in this way, we can work and do our part to stop the stigma one writer at a time. Give Harry a piece of your mind. And I'm done speaking.
8: Thanks so much, Christopher. Dude, you are so on point.
4: I'm definitely writing him. Let's flood his
8: inbox. And more importantly, it's like this notion of synthetic and designer cannabinoids, that's not plant medicine. And when we say cannabis, we're talking about a plant. So at the very least, just call out the single ingredient, some Delta-8, some fake THC, Marinol or whatever, but lumping cannabis, true God's plant-made medicine, as a, a vilifying it, there have been no deaths from cannabis. I don't believe this one counts.
5: I'm with you, Gee. I'm calling fake news on them claiming that cannabis killed this individual. It's very tragic that the individual passed, but I'm not willing to believe that cannabis is the cause. That is total fake news.
1: It's so irresponsible. Thank you, Christopher. Um, We've got a call to action, folks. Let's make sure that we flood his inbox. And let's keep smoking the news.
2: Let's Coming straight out of Long Beach This CEO of deliciously vegan fruit slabs Is also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney He's well known amongst certain circles To produce vibes beneath his beard And when you find these vibes You have no no chance resisting them Brandon Dorsky, what you got for us today, man?
11: Thanks for having me. Uh, Today my headline is California lawmakers consider legislation to increase consumer warnings on cannabis labels, as reported by the Cannabis Business Times. Senator Richard Pan sponsored Senate Bill 1097, the Cannabis Right to Know Act, on February 16th, which proposes to increase disclosures and warnings on cannabis labels. And the bill was scheduled for a hearing on Monday in the Senate Business, Professions, and Economic Development Committee. Pan has asserted that additional consumer warnings are necessary for cannabis products, saying, quote, I authored the Cannabis Right to Know Act because current health warnings required for cannabis products are insufficient to communicate well-established health risks, especially to our youth. His well-established health risks sound like reefer madness talking points. He pointed to only a national survey on drug use and health to support his argument that cannabis use in teens increased. Pan's proposal would require that cannabis labels have a rotating warning with a bright yellow background and a 12-point font that includes wording such as, quote, Cannabis use may contribute to mental health problems, including psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia. Risk is greatest for frequent users and when using products with high THC levels, end quote. Pan's proposed language reeks of protectionist policies, and industry stakeholders agree. Canacraft's chief of government affairs, Tiffany Devitt, said, protect the children hysteria is taken to such absurd lengths that it ends up hurting the very communities it's purporting to protect. The California Cannabis Industry Association, more commonly known as CCIA, also voiced its opposition to the bill, stating, while we appreciate the bill's intent, its focus may be more effectively guided toward consumer education, already in program and funded by cannabis tax revenues from the licensed market. This bill is crap. Richard, should be, uh, Richard Pan should be elevated to the cannabis industry's most wanted bullshitter list, for even suggesting this type of language. I will go further and suggest Richard Pan is probably just sucking on the teat of the pharma industry. At least that's my opinion of anybody who would introduce language like this to be added to cannabis labels. Just like we are suggesting people write Harry Taylor and inform him of the generally recognized safety of licensed cannabis products, I encourage our listeners to contact Richard Pan's office and call bullshit. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News.
1: Brandon, how much time did you spend uh, creating your labels? How, how uh, involved was that? I bet it was a headache.
11: Uh, we spent weeks, sometimes months, creating our labels. When we've changed our warnings, uh, we go through a whole process. We seek industry consultation. We talk with our co-manufacturers about why we want to change the language and could that expose anybody to liability? Why are we offering these disclosures that the... Law doesn't require us to give, what we want to have so consumers are better informed. We do not take changes to labels lightly at all at
1: fruit slabs. We've got Joanna Cedar up from the audience. Joanna, what you got? Thank you so much, Susan. This again is Lynn Silver from the Public Health Institute pushing Senator Pan to, to write this ridiculous bill. And the problem is, is that is that they? It, it's all protect the children, protect the children, protect the children, and children don't go into dispensaries. So I'm I'm just flummoxed by the whole thing. But again, Lynn Silver from the Public Health Institute and her protectionist, anti-cannabis, anti-anti children. Um, although she calls herself a pediatrician, very disappointing. Thank you. If you want to protect the children, buy my book and read it to them. I'd here, also here. like to
11: note when people. When, when people introduce stuff like this, they don't consider the massive transaction costs for all the industry stakeholders to change their packaging. And like, as Joanna just said, this helps no one. The kids don't go into these dispensaries. They don't need to see this stuff on labels. So again, Richard Pan is just suggesting stuff that makes it harder for cannabis businesses to make a profit in an already very difficult business.
5: Sounds like Richard Pan's bill is not going to pan out.
1: It made it through committee.
4: Great article. Brandon and great reading.
1: So we, great vibes. So we've got two calls to action today, everyone. I will send it yes, out indeed. in the newsletter.
5: All right. Well, thank you so much Brandon. That was a fantastic story. Coming up next, we have Shalina Panu. She's attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis entertainment and psychedelics. She's also the co-owner of one of the flyest IG pages on the team. What do you have this morning for us, Shalina?
10: Thank you so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Plaintiffs Assert Illinois Cannabis License Process is Violating the Dormant Commerce Clause. According to Patch, two plaintiffs, Juan Finch Jr. and Mark, Mark Toigo, are aspiring cannabis business owners of the Conditional Adult Use Dispensing Organization licenses under Illinois Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act. As stated in the complaint, which you can view here, this is a conditional license that allows owners to sell cannabis in Illinois for recreational use. Plaintiffs have brought a civil action in an Illinois federal court against Mario, Treto Jr., the acting secretary of the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, stating that he has unconstitutionally discriminated against the plaintiffs on the grounds that their out-of-state residency is in direct violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. There is a minimum residency period that an Illinois owner must prove residency in each of the past five years, which plaintiffs have argued is in violation of the DCC. The DCC is a principle that state and local laws are unconstitutional if they place an undue burden on interstate commerce, unless it serves a a legitimate or important local government purpose that cannot be accomplished in less discriminatory ways, or number two, the state has to show that there is no less discriminatory way to accomplish this state-slash-local purpose. The Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation allotted 185 conditional licenses in three separate lotteries. They specifically assert that both non-resident plaintiffs were categorically barred from participating in two of those lotteries and fatally disadvantaged from participating in the third. Plaintiff seeks to enjoin the department from issuing any of those 185 licenses and for the state to remove the residency requirements and rerun the licensing process. They further want to stop the state's residency requirement under a different section of the regulations so that they can apply for the 55 conditional adult use dispensing organization licenses that the governor just announced last week to be issued later this year. To qualify for a lottery for a conditional dispensing license, the applicant must file an application, pay a fee, and score high enough on the application to quote-unquote qualify in the lottery. Applicants receive points based on binary metrics such as residency status and subjective factors like the quality of the business plan. The department awards up to 250 points for dispensing license based on suitability of an employee training plan, uh, security and record keeping, business plan, financials, operating and floor plan, knowledge and experience, status as a social equity applicant, labor and employment practices, environmental plan, status as an Illinois owner, status as a veteran, diversity plan and plans to engage with the community. Out-of-state residents cannot qualify for 55 out of the 250 points because the state reserves five points for Illinois' owners and 50 points for social equity applicants who must also be Illinois residents along with other requirements. It also requires that both an Illinois owner and a social equity applicant require 51% ownership and control by someone who is an an Illinois resident. For non-residents, the maximum number of points one can earn is 195 out of 250. In the first lottery in July 2021, 55 conditional licenses were issued, but only those applicants who received at least 85% of the 250 application points, or 213, were eligible to, eligible to participate, which by default renders out-of-state citizens unqualified. The second lottery in August 2021, 55 conditional licenses again went out, again went out to, 50 to 85% of the 250 application points, and those who lived in a particular area within Illinois were eligible to participate. The third lottery, Also in August 2021, 75 conditional licenses were issued only to those who received a top score on their applications. Funny enough, there was a perfect score, including bonus points, amounting to 252 total. In turn, to participate in any of the three lotteries, an applicant must have gotten 213 or a perfect score, which neither plaintiff could qualify for as an out-of-state resident. Further, the governor announced last week they will be issuing 55 more conditional licenses this year. The state has implied that only social equity applicants or comparable individuals are allowed. Plaintiffs have argued that under the DCC, the U.S. Constitution prohibits state laws that facially discriminate against out-of-state citizens who have an economic interest. They argue that they were not able to participate in the July and social equity lottery solely on the grounds that they are non-residents. Further, they assert that the August lottery required a top score to which plaintiffs automatically lost 55 points due to them being out-of-state residents. One of the plaintiffs also moved to Illinois in December of 2021, but being that he's only been there for four months, he still does not qualify. Plaintiffs state the discrimination is not narrowly tailored to serve a legitimate local purpose. There is no local purpose at all, and that the rationale for awarding benefits of social equity applicants applies equally to Americans in all states, and this purpose can be achieved without discriminating against non-residents. They're asking the federal judge to issue an injunctive and declaratory, declaratory relief by declaring the residency requirements unconstitutional under the U.S. Commerce Clause. What are your thoughts on this Illinois residency requirement? My name is Shalina and I'm reporting for the State of Kansas <laughs> Hour.
1: Thank you for doing that so quickly. We have reached the end of the show, though, so um, comment, uh, send us an email. Uh, That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through the headlines each day to bring us just what we know, need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust.
0: You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News
2: Hour, your daily dose.
1: Say goodbye, Rico.
2: Don't rub chilling in your kid's eyes. Bye. <laughs> you yeah, got no doubt.